0: If you are new around here, if you're joining us for the first time in a while, we are in a series in the book of Luke called Kingdom and Cross. And uh, just to get us started here, if I think I'm just going to pull up a stool and chat. I don't normally do this, but can we just chat for a minute? Is that that okay? Okay. So I'm going to just be vulnerable for a, a minute because one of the one of the hardest things about being a pastor um, are the words of Jesus. That's one of the hardest things about, and I better explain that, because you're like, well, isn't that the point? You're a pastor. That's what you do, right? That, that's your job. But let me just explain this. Because there are, there are plenty of areas in my heart that really pull, pull me towards the cultural narrative of our time. And the, the cultural narrative of our time goes something like this, that, that most people are basically good right? Most people are basically good. And if you're basically good, you go to heaven. That's the cultural narrative of our time. Basically, all roads lead to the same place. That if, if you are a sincere follower, whatever you're following, as long as you're sincere, that you get there, right? And if i just real honest, can, can I be real honest and just admit there's places in my heart uh, that like that idea? And I think there's places in your heart that like that idea, too. That there's places in your heart that really think, I, I wish that was true. That wants to believe that we're all basically good people, when you boil it down to it. And that being basically good is basically good enough, right? It's good enough. The problem is Jesus' words. That's the problem. And the problem is Jesus makes some incredibly strong and exclusive truth claims. So this whole notion in our culture that, you know, there's there's no... That, that there's no such thing as you know, ultimate truth. Uh, Jesus makes some incredibly uh, hard claims. If, if you think Jesus was just a good moral teacher and you can honestly sit and read through all of his words and, and not wrestle with it and just land that, well, he was such a good moral teacher, uh, you really haven't read his words because you can't really come to that conclusion about him. He makes some incredibly exclusive truth claims. He constantly reminds people who think they're basically good that their hearts are actually wicked and evil. That's what he, you, you see constantly. And he constantly tells people who think you're in with God, people who, a lot of people who think they're in with God in the culture, to a lot of those kind of people, he would constantly look at and go, hey, you're actually out. You think you're in, but you're out, right? So as a preacher, as you're re- preaching through some of these texts, and like I've been saying, uh, sometimes we do topical series where we, we preach on topics that are relevant to, to where you're at in life. And other times we preach verse by ver- verse through, the, through books of the Bible. That's what we've been doing for a while through the book of Luke. And one of the things is when you come to hard passages, you don't get to skip them. You don't get to just pick the feel-good passages, so as you read through these passages as a preacher, you have to decide if you're, if you're really going to just simply reassure people who think they're basically good that they're right and give them some self-help tips to basically get a little better. You have to decide if you're going to do that or if you're going to really lay open the hard words of Jesus and ask people to search their hearts and come humbly before God. And I think that's really the only honest way to approach the scriptures and the words of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. So if you have your Bibles, you could open them up to Luke chapter 13. And we're going to go through a really big chunk of scripture, more scripture than I normally go through on a, uh, on a weekly basis, because it's basically the same Jesus is making. It's it's helpful as you read through Scripture sometimes, not just to to pick out a little devotional section, but to read a big chunk of it, because you really get the heart of what the author of Scripture inspired by God is really trying to convey. And so a lot of times what you see in Luke is he's basically going trying to build a case, case and point, case and point. And so he's building a big case, and that's exactly what's been going on over the last about two chapters of here. And so we're going to take a larger chunk today so we can really get a feel for that. And here's, here's where it starts in Luke chapter 13, verse 32. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. And so you see the the setting, because Jesus has been talking and challenging them on all sorts of different areas. And somehow he's just, last week, we actually had a a more encouraging passage. It's been kind of heavy lately, and I know it. It's like, you know, uh, there's just these heavy passages week after week, right? Last week, it was a little more um, lighter, right? We got to poke fun of the Pharisees a little bit. We like doing that. We talked about the kingdom of God, some of the incredible ways the church in the kingdom of God is expanding around the world today, even though we don't necessarily see it in our culture, but in China and Africa and South America, uh, the way that just... God's The movement of God is just continuing to grow at an incredible pace. So we saw that last week. And then right after this, somebody asks him, um, as he's going through, Lord, are there only going to be a few people saved? And Jesus basically doesn't answer the question. He does this a lot. Instead of answering the question, he turns it very personal. He's saying, instead of you worrying about all those people out there and how many and, and you know, how this is all going to go, no, search your own heart. And so you, he looks at this guy and says, you make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And this is a pretty common saying that Jesus would say. And this is, like I said, Jesus made some pretty strong, exclusive truth statements. You see the same thing in Matthew, enter by the narrow gate. You see in John, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, I am the entry point to God's flock. Uh, You see another time where he answers someone and says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. Now that's narrow, isn't it? That is narrow. It's not a wide path that he's talking about. He says, I am the only way. And coming through faith in me, as you put together the scriptures, is the only way that you come to God. And this is not a popular thought in our culture like we just started out saying, right? This isn't popular. The popular narrative of our culture is the idea that all roads kind of lead basically to the same spot as long as you're sincere, as long as you, as you follow. It doesn't, you know, if you're basically good and, you know, we all kind of think we're, we're just good enough, you know? We're not great, not like Billy Graham great or Mother Teresa great, but, you know, we're doing better than the slackers over there, right? And so if we're basically good enough, then, you know, things kind of shake out. And let me just say, if you struggle with this concept of the narrow door, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, of entering through the narrow gate, if you struggle with that, um, I understand that struggle, but if if you feel skeptical about that, let me just ask you this question. Um, What if Jesus is right and you're wrong? That's a good question to ask. If you find yourself in the place of just kind of pushing back about this teaching, how confident are you that you are right and Jesus is wrong? Because if what Jesus is saying is truth, then then it merits really taking a hard look at this. It merits searching through these things and not just sort of pushing it off to the side. It merits paying some attention to what Jesus is saying, doesn't it? And so Jesus goes on, and then he's going to tell a little parable. Parable is a made-up story to, to illustrate a point, point. and here's what he tells of this. He says, so you enter, enter through the, the narrow door, and he says, try, try hard. You, you want to be focused and make sure you, you figure this thing out. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us, but he will answer, I don't know you. Or where you come from, then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. we hung out. I mean we were around you, Jesus. don't you remember? I mean we were all we saw you, you know we thought you were pretty cool but he will reply, verse 27, I don't know you or where you come from away from me you evildoers That's a pretty heavy little parable, isn't it? And it mirrors other parables that Jesus teaches on the same subject. And and, and really the heart of this is this. You respond to Jesus when he calls you. Don't put off the opportunity. Because there is a point and, and, and the opportunity is in this life. But don't just think even in this life, I'm going to push off responding to Jesus way down the road. Because what happens, and you see this theme in Scripture, what happens is this, as you harden your heart continually, when God reaches out and you don't respond to him, you don't respond to him, eventually you find yourself in a place where you won't respond to him. And your heart grows hard. And so don't have this thinking of, I'll put it off, I'll put it off, I'll put it off. The point is you respond to Jesus when he calls you, right? And then the other side of this, and this is pretty heavy, but but... You get this. that All these people are saying, Jesus, we've been around you this whole time. We were around you. We knew you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. And the truth is that proximity to Jesus does not equal relationship with Jesus. Let me put it this way. How many of you have ever met somebody famous or a little bit famous maybe? Yeah. Now, how many of you, keep your hands up for a second. How many of you think they know your name and who you are? Yeah, I had, back in the day, I thought I wanted to be a rock star, you know. Uh, anybody else? Yeah. Uh, so I was going for the whole band thing, and it would have been really cool, you know, but God didn't have that plan for me, right? Um, but my band did actually fairly well at one contest uh, where we, uh, we replaced like this big gospel music con- contest up in uh, Estes Park. We competed, and Michael Tate, who is the lead singer of Newsboys now. He used to be in DC Talk. And if you know who that is, you're like old school Christian music, right? Yeah, you know, you're, you're a church nerd if you, if you remember DC Talk. God is doing it. Anyway, we had a little rap group. Yeah, okay, I won't go there. Because you don't want to hear me rap. Because I'm just saying white boy cannot rap, okay? That's all I'm saying. But anyway, Michael Tate sitting right out here. And uh, he's one of our judges, and he really digs our band. I mean, he came up to af- afterwards. And he's like, Good job, guys, right? And on our judging sheet, he wrote this great little phrase. I wrote it down. Actually, I put it on our website. Uh, it said, Passion, art, message, just good music, writes Michael Tate. And so that was on our little publicity kit we try to send out to go get gigs in different spots and, and, and stuff. And the point is, I, I knew Michael Tate, right? But I guarantee you, if today I show up at Michael Tate's kid's birthday party with a gift, trying to come on into the door, I'm probably going to get escorted out by the police, you know? He's going to be like, "Uh, dude, I don't know you. And I'll be like, oh, remember remember the one time? And I don't know you. I don't know you, right? Proximity to Jesus does not equal relationship with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus, just because you've been around religious circles, just because you grew up in church, just because you've done the whole thing, your whole life does not equal relationship with Jesus. And this is so this is such a honestly, this scripture is is really disturbing in so many ways. Because the people who are right the closest to Jesus ended up missing him. It's heart response to Jesus and heart relationship with him. That's what counts. That's what counts. It's not church attendance, although that's a good thing, right? It's not giving, although that's a good thing. It's not even reading your Bible every day, although, again, that's a good thing. And see, what happens a lot of times is we confuse and we think just the good things equal relationship with God. The truth is it's heart response to Jesus. that equals relationship with God. And so he goes on. Verse 28, it says this. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, this is regret, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That means regret, major, major regret. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the forefathers, the patriarchs of the whole Jewish nation, Right? As you see them there, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And Jesus looks at these people, the people who thought they were in because of their genetics. They could trace their ancestry all the way back to Abraham. They knew exactly, they had the right pedigree, the right family line. They were the children, God's people, they were children of of, of Abraham, right? They were in. And then not just because of that, but because they were really good too. They were really good at all the religious stuff. They did a really good job of keeping all the the, the rules, all the man-made traditions. And yet Jesus constantly, you'll see this constantly. This is like last week, we looked at the Sabbath. Why? Because right before that, Jesus said, repent or perish. Repent or perish, right? And then, case in point, he goes on, and the, the author in Luke gives us this, this story of these people who were really good at keeping the Sabbath, plus all these 1,500 man made rules about the Sabbath, but their hearts lacked mercy and compassion, which is the heart of what God is actually after, and the heart of what it's all about, and they missed it. And Jesus says, your hearts are far from God. And you're going to be shocked because there's going to be a group of people who thought they're in and they're going to show up. And there's all kinds of random people they would have never expected that are in. They despise Gentiles. and He says, people from the east and the north and the south and the west, all over, are going to get in first, right? Because they responded They weren't related by genetics, but they didn't keep all the laws very well, but they responded to the call to repent, and they embraced Jesus in their hearts. They had a heart response. So Jesus lays this one on them and keeps walking, and and as he does this, it says, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, there's two possibilities here. Um, One is that there's actually a group of Pharisees that go on to follow Jesus later. uh, After the resurrection, maybe these these guys were kind of on Jesus' side. Or maybe this message was so heavy that they wanted to think of any excuse to get Jesus out of there, right? And so they said, Jesus, uh, uh, Herod wants to kill you. Why don't you get out of here? Why don't you get out of here? He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Then he goes on, and this is called the lament for Jerusalem. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed, to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings. And you will were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus, literally, he, it's like he puts on his Old Testament prophet hat. And he uses language similar to that of the prophet Jeremiah who uh, a short time before the destruction of the the first temple in Jerusalem in the the year 586 B.C., when the Babylonians came in, laid siege to the city, set the temple on fire, and it was a horrible massacre, hauled most of the nation, all the rich and famous people, off into exile in Babylon for 70 years, and then only a small remnant ever came back to Israel. And so that was the first destruction of the temple. And Jeremiah said this, prophesying against the people. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees, build siege ramps against Jerusalem. The city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, Jerusalem or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate. And Jesus takes on the hat of the prophet Jeremiah here and says, your house will be left to you desolate. Jesus will do this again over the upcoming chapters in much more detail. A little later, but he just struck, he prophesied the destruction of the whole temple religious system that had produced at this point these religious leaders that were so corrupt um, that they were oppressing the weak and the poor. They were money hungry. If you remember Jesus turning over the temples, they turned the whole thing into a fight all about financial gain and they oppressed the weak and they made it hard for people to actually respond to God with all their hearts. And that's what John the Baptist came with the Old Testament prophet hat on, and now Jesus as he reminds him of this. And shockingly, as Jesus says this, your house will be left to you desolate. The historian Josephus tells us that less than 40 years later, the Romans came and destroyed the second temple on the same day of the same month that it was destroyed by Babylon, 660 years earlier. Isn't that incredible? And Jews still fast every, every year on a day that's known as Tishba'av, the ninth of Av, and lament over this. And Jesus here laments for the city. And as he does this, it shows the hearts of God for people who are far from him. Because he says, knowing that they're not going to respond, he says, I've longed to gather you. This is this tender idea. I've longed to gather you, to protect you. But you were not willing you are not willing. And for these people, people who think they're basically good, Jesus reminds them that, that you can be so close to the promise of God and yet miss it. And this little bottom phrase here, and this is just a little teaching moment here before we head on, but blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even in the warning, there's hope. And I believe that Scripture teaches that, as you put together the different Scriptures, that Jesus points to a future time when the majority of the nation of Israel will turn and recognize him as their Messiah. And you see that in what Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11 as well. There's hope, but for this generation, this generation, they've hardened their hearts. And actually, interestingly, after this, Jesus no longer addresses the whole nation of Israel in this book of Luke. So Luke now goes on to another story. And remember this pattern warning, case in point. That's what we saw last week repent or perish. And then, case in point, which is the Sabbath, your hearts are hard. Warning, enter by the narrow door. Warning, your house will be left to you desolate. And now, Luke again, it's like through his gospel, if you were to read through the whole thing, which you can't miss, is that he's just building this case for, um, by the time he gets to the end of Acts, remember Luke and Acts, two volumes of one long story. And Paul is sitting in front of the Jewish leaders in Romans saying, you guys just aren't embracing Jesus. So we're going to take this message to the Gentiles, and they're going to embrace it. And so this is the big big story that Luke is telling. So 14.1, here we have another Sabbath story. And we're not going to take much time on the Sabbath. If you missed the Sabbath story last week, go back, catch up on our website because we talk about this a lot. So one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Now this sounds like a setup. He's going to dinner in the house of a prominent Pharisee. You remember it's the Pharisees and him that are all his button heads. And then it says he was being carefully watched. And I I think this is my parenthesis, this isn't in the Bible, but I think it's like, and there just so happened to be there in front of him, there was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of, of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. I think it was a setup. They just happened to have this dude in there, you know, just waiting to see what he'd do so they could accuse him again. And what Luke is doing here is it's case in point. See, your hearts are hard. Keep warning of this judgment. It's because your hearts are hard. You're missing it. It's about your heart and your hearts are far from God. And then Jesus goes on and he asks him, verse five, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. They're just silent. Their hearts are hard, right? And again, it's like you follow your religious tradition as far as it's in your best interest, but your hearts are the issue here because you have no compassion on anyone else. And then you'd think at at this time, Jesus would just walk out of the dinner party, right? (laughs) Trying to trick me. That's probably what I would do. (laughs) But Jesus, our culture has this kinder, gentler sort of idea of Jesus. You know, it's just like, not very strong. No, check it out. He stays at a hostile dinner party, and he just goes after these guys. I love it. Check this out. Verse 7. So then he's looking around right after this as they're eating, and he says, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both will... Both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For, and here's the punchline, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, remember, this is a story Jesus is telling to prove to make a point. And, and in the culture of the time, banquet tables would, would, would have been set up in a U-shaped with the host of the party at the head and then around him in order of importance, everyone else, you know. And so you, Jesus is sitting back here watching these guys as they come in and they come in and they grab a plate and they lick it, you know, and put it right back, dibs. Two guys are like, one guy's like, shotgun, you know, and he slides in there and bumps the other guy off. And Jesus is watching this whole scene go down, right? Now, when you read this, like we start thinking, now, what does this mean and how does this exactly apply? I think the point of the parable is their hearts. And Jesus is highlighting the pride in their hearts, the way that their spirit, what they want to do is exalt themselves in the eyes of others, right? It's not really about who's sitting where. That's really not the point. It's about their hearts. And in the background behind this whole issue is is the issue of God's relationship to us and us standing before him. And before God, no one stands exalted, right? No one stands exalted before God. And humility is really approaching God on his terms. Jesus said, the narrow door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And see, Humility when it comes to God is not saying, I think I'm good enough. I think I got it down. I think I've got it together. Humility is saying, I don't. And so I come to you on your terms. And the terms that Jesus keeps saying is you repent, which is you turn. You acknowledge the fact that you're sinful, that you can't make it to God on your own. And you turn from going away from God to going towards God. And as you embrace and truly trust in what he did for you, and his Holy Spirit begins to transform you, your life begins to look more like him. And pride, like we said last week, is not a minor sin in the Bible. We think of this as just a minor thing. And Jesus, again, looks at their hearts. He looks at their hearts. And so let me just ask you, you know, just for your sake of your heart in the room, do you have a strong desire for attention? Either... Some of you would say, no, no, but get this, either expressed through achievement of people seeing what I've achieved or through being needy. That's another indication of a strong desire for attention, for people to, to make much of you, right? Are you jealous or critical of people who succeed? It's a good question to search your heart. Do you have a pattern of lying to cover for yourself so that you look better? Do you have a hard time acknowledging you were wrong? Do you have a lot of conflicts with other people? Do you cut in line at the store or the airport or on the freeway? How do you see, see this gets dead? Do you really think you're better than others? You can say, no, no. But do your actions betray you? Do they betray your heart in this situation? Do you tend more towards an attitude of entitlement? People owe me, God owes me, or gratitude? Do you honestly feel that you're basically a good person and you're superior to other people who may not be? And see, hopefully you're honest in the room and recognize that pride is is something that every one of us in some way or the other struggles with. And see that there's no place to come before God in a spirit of pride on our terms. It's coming saying I recognize this in my heart and it's icky. It's icky, right? So by this time, um, it's starting to get awkward in the room, right? Jesus just dives in and goes for their heart. And then he doesn't Stop. It just keeps going for their heart. Check this out. Verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Now, I think Jesus is looking around the circle of people around the table and seeing a bunch of successful, rich, wealthy people, right? If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, here's here's the thing. Again, other parts of Scripture were told to feast with relatives, okay? So, So it's not, Jesus isn't saying don't ever have dinner with your family and friends. That's not the point here. The point is he is going after their hearts and what he sees happening here. The point is this. The point is, do you ever reach out to people who don't elevate your social status? Do you ever really reach out to people who can do nothing for you in return? Are they included or are they just less than you? It's all about how do you see people? And, and, and this is all about, is your heart all about you, all about your advancement, your success, your little K kingdom, and not God's kingdom? And how you see people and how you interact with people is one of the biggest telltale signs. Again, your actions betray your heart, right? And is there anything, anything in your life, is there any evidence that any of your relationships are not just simply about your success. You know, there's that old saying. Um, and it's hard because it's, it's a, it's a, it makes a lot of sense and it's a wise thing, right? The, you most resemble the five people you spend the most time with, right? And it's a good thing to teach your teenage kids when they start hanging out with that crowd of people, you know? But here's the thing, too, oftentimes we can start thinking like this because we're always thinking about our social hierarchy and advancement. And before you know it, all of our effort and all of our relationships are ultimately, if we're honest, all about us, about what you can do for me, about how you make me look, right? Again, Jesus dives after their heart, right? He dives after their heart. And every, can you just hear, you could hear a pin drop in that room as they're around the table. (laughs) Because Jesus is calling out their hearts right here at this who's who little banquet in this town right here, right? And by this time, man, it is really awkward. It is really awkward. And so somebody just like raises their hand, you know, and interjects. And I think this is such an awkward comment, right? At this point. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I think I'll just throw something out here. We're all part of, I see there were two groups of people. One believed in the resurrection and uh, that was the Pharisees. They believed in it. The Sadducees didn't. Cheesy joke. I've told it too many times. Won't go there tonight. Um, but the Sadducees didn't. So they're all part of the, the Pharisees. And so they, dude's like, man, let me just throw something out there. At least we can all agree on like, this is like us awkwardly talking about the weather at that point in the conversation. You know, We can all agree we want spring to come. Okay, whew, let's just release some tension. And so he, he throws this out there. Man, You know, how great will it be that when we all are sitting together eating at the feast because we all believe in the resurrection, right? We're all in. And Jesus, just to dive in and make this even harder at this point, he tells another parable. He tells another parable. And just a quick aside on this. The feast at the kingdom of God. This is the idea that See, we have the wrong idea of heaven. Harps, you know, little like malformed wings. You know, just robes floating on soft clouds. Oh, it's going to be the biggest party ever. The best party. There'll be some quiet spaces for you introverts as well. You know, don't worry. But it'll be like the most amazing thing. Listen to how Isaiah says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all of them. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes heaven as, a, as like a, a book you're reading where every chapter just is better than the one before and it never ends. See, we have the wrong idea of heaven in our culture. And so this guy, you know, the feast of the kingdom of God. So everybody's like, oh yeah, it'll be amazing. You know, that feast. We're all gonna be there. And Jesus breaks the news to him again. You think you're going to be there, but not everybody who thinks they're going to be there is there. Check this out. Verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. All kinds of people had been invited, right? Now, there's all sorts of theories about these different things. You know, scholars study this. But basically, let me just tell you what these are. Lame excuses. Lame excuses. And, and here's how an ancient party would work. It was a big deal when you throw a big banquet like this, Right? And so they'd send out invitations way ahead of time and invite the guests. The banquet's going to be right around this time. And there was like an ancient system to RSVP. I'm in. Yeah, sounds like a blast. And then when it comes time and they send the servants out to go, hey, party's ready. Come on out, you know. All these people have lame excuses. Not only is this incredibly rude at this point, they're going to miss the best party of their lives. For some stupid excuse. Really? You have to go check on your oxen? I've just bought a field. The field will be there when you get back. Seriously, right? Lame excuses. So, verse 21 the servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house then became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and, and alleys of the town. Bring in who? What did we just learn about? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. They're not going to have an excuse not to come to the best party ever. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, and here's the punchline, and this is the hard truth. See, case and point, case, and Luke's just hammering this point here. I tell you, not one of those invited will get a taste of my banquet. And it's so sad, right? That those who thought they were in, they even RSVP'd, they're actually out because they refused to respond to Jesus. They refused to respond to the invitation. And it sounds harsh, but it was them who turned down the invitation, wasn't it? It was them who turned down the invitation. Why? Because they had better things to do better things to do. And really, here's the takeaway for you today of what, yes, I know is another hard message, and that is this. Proximity to Jesus doesn't cut it. Is your heart responsive to him? That just because you grew up in church doesn't, doesn't cut it. It's a heart response the heart response. It's possible to do things for God and, and not know him. That's what Jesus says in Matthew. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. They're like, but Lord, we did all these things like churchy things. We prophesied in your name and cast out demons. And he said, I never knew you. There wasn't a relationship there. One of the hardest, honestly, one of the scariest passages, I think, in the whole Bible, Matthew 7. Do you just have religious activity or do you have a relationship with God? It's possible just to get into religious activity and never actually truly respond in your heart to Jesus. What is God's will? If Jesus says, the one that does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, lays it out for us. And the way he puts it is this. This is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. And believe in is really this term. Um, it, it's, it's faith, but it's, it's more than just an intellectual assent of, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's Fully placing your trust in, like this stool. And I've done this before, right? I can say I, I believe in that stool, or I can show I trust in it. And this is showing I trust as I sit in it. And that's the idea, is you fully place your trust in Jesus. And he says, and there's an evidence that you've done that. How it works itself out is you, become, you begin to become a person who is other-centered centered and focused. That you really do begin to love others with a love that's not just, you know, your own made-up love, not just the love that everybody has, like, for their own family, right? That's, but it's a love for others that, that values others, that sees them the way God sees them. And not that you earn it. Ephesians says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. One of the best illustrations of this is the guy, the thief on the cross, who in the last moments of his life turned over and literally said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus goes, you're in. It's not anything you do, but it is. But do you realize what the thief on the cross did? Is he responded to Jesus from his heart. He responded to Jesus from his heart, right? Do you have better things to do? Ultimately, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying better things to do than be at church. Although again, that's good, right? That's good. But I'm saying, is your heart oriented towards Jesus and his kingdom? Or is ultimately, really, if you're honest, all of your life, pretty much all about you. All of your time, pretty much all about you all of your spending, pretty much all about you. Ultimately, your heart is betrayed by, by your attitudes towards others and your actions. And the thing is, you might fool other people, but you can't fool God. Amen. You can't fool God. And so here's all I want you to do with this. Is tonight as you lay in bed or tomorrow morning when you wake up and it's still quiet and your kids haven't woken up yet because then it's not quiet, Right? Would you honestly ask God how your heart is responding to him? Have you ever really embraced what he's done for you and put your, fully put your faith and trust in him? Have you ever really acknowledged the fact that you can't cut it on your own, that you're not just good enough? And then, you know, if you're like, well, I did that years ago. How's your heart responding to him? How's your heart responding to him today? How's your heart responding? Is there evidence in your life that your life is being transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit? And all I want you to do is to ask God that question, God, how is my heart responding to you? If you don't like the answer to that question, would you ask him to change your heart? Would you stand? And I'm not going to do an actual opportunity to respond tonight because I, I want you to take this home and really wrestle with it. But if you're here and you've, you know that you've never really embraced him, you can do that in your own words by calling out to him, by acknowledging your need for him, by confessing your sin and, and inviting him to truly save you, asking him, crying out to God. There's not, sometimes I think when we do the, the pray after me, think, you, you, you think it's a magic prayer, and it's not. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a response. And you can do that either while we pray, before you go home tonight, or you can do that as you think and ponder later. Let me pray for you. Father, I, I pray for us here in this room, each one of us, that we would really wrestle with this. And for some that maybe uh, grew up in a church background, would you let this just be unsettling to them? For some that maybe see no fruit in their life, would you let this be unsettling to them? Would you let them really wrestle with you and do business with you over this, Lord? Lord, we love you. We thank you that you were willing, you loved us enough that you spoke the truth. And so, Lord, even though these are hard words, we thank you that you give each and every one of us an opportunity to respond to your invitation. And so, Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.